Germany has to do some soul searching, has to do some rethinking about its role in Europe and its fiscal, political and security responsibilities for itself and for the other European members. Hello and welcome to Think Atlantic, a podcast series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategy Division in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Mezerg and I'm your host for this show. Today we are going to talk about Germany, its economy and its place in Europe and the world as Russia's war in Ukraine rages on. And for this, I am joined by none other than Dr. Markus Kerber. Dr. Kerber is an economist by trade and he's currently the chief strategic advisor to Friedrich Merz, the party leader of the German Christian Democratic Union, or CDU, the main opposition party today. He served between 2017 and 2021 as State Secretary at the Internal Ministry of Interior and Communities, the uh, German government, after a six-year tenure as CEO of the Federation of German Industries. Dr. Kerben, vielen Dank für Ihren Zeit und uh, herzlich willkommen zu Think Atlantic. Thank you very much. Bonjour and Dankeschön. Thank you. So, Dr. Kerber, I'm afraid I have exhausted my very limited knowledge of the German language. So I'm going to switch back to English fully. And thank you for your words in English and in French. And let's get straight into the, the heart of our conversation here, which is the health of the German uh, economy. It seemed to many across the Atlantic world that the cargo ship Deutschland, so to speak, was proof resistant to pretty much every crisis in the 2000 and 2010s. I'm just going to enumerate some of those crises that basically the rest of the world had to deal with, that Germany seemed to be completely proof-resistant to. The financial crisis of 2008, the euro crisis of the early 2010s, the migration crisis of 2015, the rise of populism in Europe in the late 2010s, and also despite the difficulties initially that the German economy seems to have done pretty much good or better than others during the COVID crisis in the early 2020s. But now we seem to be in front of some challenges not least of which, of course, with energy. And I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment. There are some people to say that the German economy was relying on uh, cheap gas from Russia, the cheap workforce from Central Europe and open markets from China. And many of these are seemingly shifting. So I'd like to ask you, how is the, the German economy doing right now? And should we be worried about its future? And if I can ask an additional question to the economist in, a, in the room, which is you, what major internal and external factors are you paying attention to the most in doing the diagnosis, so to speak, of the German economy. Well, thank you very much, Thibault, for that uh, bundle of questions regarding German economy. I'm very grateful to the International Monetary Fund to uh, have prepared myself uh, with their report last week that they published on the state of affairs of major uh, global economies. And as you may have read and heard, their outlook on the German economy is not very good. And they point out that there are some structural issues in the German economy, which uh, are the foundation of the worries. And let me just recap a little bit why this IMF report is so important. It points out that the strengths of the German economy of the past may at the moment be uh, weaknesses. Um, first of all, Germany is amongst the biggest uh, industrial countries in the world. It has a larger than life industrial and industry services related sector in its economic model. It is in that regard second to none in the European concert of economies. Our share of GDP 
of or, or the, the absolute value of uh, industrial uh, services and, and industry products is bigger than a trillion. The number two economy in industrial terms is Italy and then to some smaller extent France, but industrial behemoth in Europe. Industry needs energy and point therefore out to the dependency on gas, which has been exacerbated by Germany's attempt to become fully reliable on renewable energy sources. But unless you have found a technical device, a technological device to store the energy that you produce with renewables, such as wind and solar, you can't store it. So you need a base performance energy supply. And that is at the moment gas. It's not so much nuclear or uh, lignite. It's gas and the gas, no prices for gas incomes almost exclusively from Russia. So this is a central weakness for the industrial sector. The second one, if you have a large industrial sector like Germany and you have a relatively small domestic economy, you rely heavily on customers abroad. And again, uh, Germany stands out as the country amongst comparably sized OECD countries that has by far the highest degree of openness. Openness defined as the sum of exports and imports in relation to GDP, which is almost 80-85%. You have to go a long way to find any other economy in the world that is so open. And also the next to the real openness, there's the financial openness, which is the money you owe to foreign trading partners and the money they have invested in your economy. Again, second to none, which leads me to the third structural point that the IMF has pointed out, which is the dependency of the German economy of an open and rules-based globalization process, which not only through the Ukraine invasion by Russia, but also through the increasing reticence of China, has come under doubt. Uh, there's clearly a, a sideway movement in globalization. So those three factors make the German economy highly dependent. The high industrial sector, which secondly needs a lot of energy, which we don't have. And thirdly, the trading markets and the open globalization system that is no longer intact and for the time being will not be intact. This all culminated, of course, in a uh, gnosis for next year of negative growth in Germany of around 0.3%. So yes, the German economy is weathering a storm and it's in a storm and it's relatively open how badly it will be damaged. But it's those three structural issues which I think we need to take into consideration when we talk about remedies. And um, you have asked me what major internal and external factors I'm paying attention to. It is in the same order that the IMF has analyzed us, that I uh, pay attention to that. First of all, industry. I think it's it's critical that for production processes, for the uh, upkeep and the productivity of major industrial production processes, that we keep the gas flow up. Be it from Norway, be it from gas storages that we have, but there needs to be a prioritization between industry as, a, as an industrial user of gas and households which the rely on gas for getting through the winter in terms of warming and heating energy in the households. And uh, if you ask me, I'd give a priority to uh, keep of industrial production because if you say have an aluminum smelter or you have chemical processes where you need industrial gases, it is, it's absolutely, absolutely highest priority to keep the gas flow here going. And if we have to ration gas and if we have to prioritize 
where the shortened amounts of gas will go, I'd give it a first go to industry because in industry you have hundreds of thousands of jobs which are on the brink and if people lose their jobs, they're not going to be very happy in their unheated apartments. Second one is related to uh, that first problem. We need to diversify our energy supplies and not only um, based on gas, but I think and follow our media, you can see it on an almost hourly basis. There is a um, struggle to uh, keep the decommissioning from three nuclear power stations from kicking in at the end of the year and maybe even undusting three dormant power stations in order to increase the production of energy, of electric energy, which can also be used for heating rather than rather than gas. So that's another internal fact that I'm looking at externally. I hope that we can foster and advance and bring forward the production of gas and in Europe, in Germany, but also in other European countries. The North Sea is one of these areas, but also could have uh, gas production in, in the Netherlands, in Germany and in other parts of Europe. And I think we have to take a very serious look at hydrogen as a gas supply in the vicinity of Europe. We're talking about green hydrogen, which needs to be produced by uh, excess renewables, which can only be in countries with a high solar radiance. So that's probably Northern Africa and the Middle East. And last external factor, I think we have to upkeep all our attempts to keep the globalization and the rules-based economy, which we've world economy which we've built up over the last three decades alive and I'm sure we will talk about that later on in our podcast but this also means that Europe needs to revitalize its transatlantic relationship with the United States of America and Canada and other friends around the world and it is a bit of a silver lining on the horizon that German government has indicated over the weekend that it has a keen interest in revitalizing after all in revitalizing transatlantic trade partnerships it has so far been met with a lukewarm reception from the United States government but it's I think early days but to sum it all up it's industry energy and globalization both as a worry but also as a as an angle to put in the solutions maybe uh, that's in a, in a first attempt my answer to your uh, really difficult question Thank you. And indeed, we will get back to the transatlantic relationship. But first, I would like to go back to the remedies. You mentioned a number of things that, that are on the table, let's say, from the, the German perspective. I'd like to talk more about economic policies, maybe in, in a more long-term perspective, and more about fiscal and monetary policy. Because if there is one thing that Germany was associated with over the past, let's say, the past 10, 15 years, it has been, let's say, fiscal conservatism. And what we've seen since 2020, since the, the, the COVID recovery plan for, for, for Europe or next generation EU, is that basically the fiscal orthodoxy that was often associated with German economic thought has been, to put it mildly, challenged. Now, I understand that there is still a lot of confusion as to whether this recovery plan was and is a one-off answer to a pressing crisis or whether this sets a precedent for the future. But I've also seen that the Federal Minister of Finance, Christian Lindner, has recently asked for a return of, of more fiscal prudence, both at home and in Europe. And that appeal seems to have been rebuffed both by his coalition partners, uh, the Greens and the Social Democrats in Germany, and also by European partners. Do you feel that we're at the end of an era and the ordo-liberalism of the 2010s is now something that, that, that is not coming back? And where does German political economic thought goes from here? 
Well, Thibaut, first of all, I would like to express my hope that we're seeing the beginning of true auto-liberalism. And true auto-liberalism, whilst always advocating balanced budgets, has always also advocated that in terms of emergency, it's the government uh, or national macroeconomic uh, emergencies that the government may and can step in in order to stabilize democratic systems if there are uh, repercussions on questions of social cohesions. But, and more importantly, if increased investment helps to return the system to a, a stable and balanced state of affairs. And I think this is the big question, uh, the $1 million question that we're all facing in the West, but particularly in Europe. How much of an external emergency are we being looking at with both COVID and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, i.e. how much more resilient do we have to make our economies and our societies? And if so, how much more investment is needed? And one of the biggest investment areas that we are trying to catch up is, of course, national defense and security, where uh, Christian Lindner as the finance minister and Olaf Scholz as the chancellor have asked for a 100 billion uh, euros debt financed investment program for the German armed forces. And very recently, in a more disputed move, they have decreed and announced that they will spend 200 billions in order to stabilize the gas bill and the energy bills for German households. Now, this is somewhat a contradiction to fiscal prudence in Europe, because no sooner had the German government announced this attention to uh, what they call put a put a stabilizer on energy prices that all other European Union members quite understandably said, well, if Germany coughs up 200 billion, we want to do the same. And all of a sudden, fiscal prudence has become at least rhetorically an oxymoron. Because you can't uh, preach to be fiscal prudent and at the same time cough up 200 billion. But in, in true auto-liberal argumentation, it would be fine if it makes the system more resilient. And the, the question is open whether the resilience is being achieved by basically propping up uh, household consumption. And I think in a true auto-liberal uh, fashion, one would look at a different uh, energy system, one would look at a probably more diversified and technologically based energy and industry system per se. Whilst I try not to criticize the current German government in a non-German media, I still think that the government's argumentation isn't really fully waterproof and uh, we will have huge discussions in Europe. What is the role of Germany when it comes to fiscal policies? What is its general macroeconomic problem? comes back to your very first question, reliance on cheap energy from outside Germany plus a relatively diversified value chain of industrial production around the world and an over-reliance of exports into the rest of the world is that the macroeconomic model that is A, good for Germany in the future as well and B, for the European Union. And I think we're facing very, very difficult but necessary discussions in the European Union what Germany's and the overall EU's macroeconomic model can be. Should we have more enlargement or should we have a deeper integration? Uh, you can't probably have both at the same time. I sometimes think enlargement is sort of the, the easy option because you just enlarge the market, the overall European market in which national economies can still play their own fair game. Whereas if you integrate more deeply 
with existing members. This means that the changes to your macroeconomic and your industry model are more far-reaching. And I think this discussion is still in the open in Germany and in the European Union. In my own personal view, I think we have to really, really re-architecture our macroeconomic model. And it has to do with Germany's place within the EU. And there are some inconsistencies both within the European Union setup and in our own mind setup in Germany. Thank you. Thank you very much for this answer. And thank you also for making my job much easier now because you just mentioned Germany's place within the EU. And that's actually the topic of my next question, because whether we like it or not, and you mentioned it at the beginning of the show, Germany is not only the economic heart of Europe, but I would also say politically the strongest member of the EU for obvious reasons and structural reasons. However, it seems that this position has sort of weakened over the past year or so, and maybe this comes back from a bit before. I think a sign of, of this relative weakening is the way the rebuttal of Christian Lindner's approach from a number of European countries went. I mean, it was pretty much out in the open. And there have also been, even more recently, uh, some very vocal complaints from some countries in Central and Southern Europe about Germany's energy policy, not only during the Merkel era with Nord Stream, etc., but also over the past few months over bulk buying of gas by the EU and Germany's reluctance to it until its own reserves were full. Now, I know that money talks, everyone listens, and Germany alone stands for a quarter of the EU's total GDP. And that's something that is is not going to change. But do you feel that Germany's position currently is now more contested in Europe? And what does that mean in your mind for the debates that you just mentioned about the future of the EU? Well, thank you, Thibault. Um, l- let me say at the outset of my answer that yes, Germany is um, accounting for roughly a quarter of the EU's total GDP. But I think we always have to see our GDP in conjunction with France's GDP. And I think together, we're almost making up for 40 to 45% or even a half of the EU's economy. So with France, we have a neighbor, an ally, a friend that by necessity, we should align our policies. Although our macroeconomic models and our national economies are quite different, I think together we are wielding the influence on a refurbishment of the macroeconomic model. And nevertheless, I can only and should only answer the question with my German pair of eyes today. And over the last 20, 30 years, as an economist, but also as a political scientist, I was always puzzled about the degree of cognitive dissonance that I see in German decision-makers' pattern when they talk about Europe. What do I mean by, by cognitive dissonance? Economic and political theory have a clear understanding of the way in which heterogeneous currency unions, and I think also heterogeneous political unions, can only work. And the theory has been put in the world by the late Charles Kindleberger, who called it the hegemonic stability theory. It sounds a little bit threatening, but it isn't threatening at all. All it says is that in a heterogeneous union, the biggest one or the biggest two or three members have to provide the stability mechanism that you would usually have in a homogeneous union by a coincidence of interests and alignments of uh, policies in a heterogeneous union by hegemonic leadership. And it means that the biggest and and the strongest members of a heterogeneous union have to provide the collective goods 
for making a union, a heterogeneous one, working. And that inevitably means that the hegemonic stability providers, which in the currency union of the euro, but also in the EU, the political and economic union, will disproportionately fall to Germany and France. It means that they have to provide more financial means and political energy than they would normally do on a pro rata basis. To take your example, if Germany was to provide the leadership within the Eurozone and the European Union, it would have to put in more than 25%, maybe 30%. I don't know what the, what the figure is. Political voters in Germany would immediately ask, well, what do we get for uh, if we pay more than is needed? Well, what you get for is that you can regulate, you can uh, design the rules of such a union in a way that benefits yourself, but also all the other members. But someone has to do the leadership job. And I think this is where the cognitive dissonance kicks in. Germany very often wants to exude and practice the leadership, but it doesn't want to pay for it. And that's, that's not tenable, I think. It's a bit like the United States in the former Bretton Woods system after the Second World War. You always have then a tension between domestic desires of, of your electorate and international needs in the international union or the system. But it's inevitable that the hegemonic leader or the hegemonic leaders, and I'm always looking to France and Germany here, they have to make up their minds and say, okay, we should invest heavily in, say, armed forces, in economic stability, in the security of energy flows, and so on, and so on, and so on. And I think we're at this point in the European evolution where together with the uh, blows to our macroeconomic model, Germany has to do some soul-searching, has to do some rethinking about its role in Europe and its fiscal, political and security responsibilities for itself and for the other European members. And we're only at the beginning of this process. We have not discussed this widely in the last 30 years. Uh, so the German electorate, I think, is relatively unprepared for that. But in times of crisis, uh, you have to face the challenge and rise up to the occasion. And I think that is the process that we're beginning to, to see happening here in Germany. Indeed, there's a lot of thinking uh, to do. And I could continue this discussion on the EU for quite a while, actually, because this is absolutely fascinating. But I'd like to expand a little bit and talk about Germany's relationship with the wider world. We'll discuss the transatlantic relationship in more details in my next question, if you don't mind. But right now, I'd like to focus on the relationship with China and Russia. Because over the, the past 15 years, Germany has built very strong business links with these two countries, uh, importing mostly gas from Russia and selling a lot of manufactured goods to China. And Germany has been accused recently of being too accommodating to these two countries which have increasingly shown themselves to be more systemic rivals than partners for cooperation and negotiation. Now, I know that German bashing is pretty easy, and let's face it, also a bit cheap as a, a way of doing things right now, But and particularly because the bashers of today were very often promoters of the German model 15 years ago. But do you feel these critics maybe have a point? Has Germany become too dependent economically on these two countries? And what can be the future of the relationship with these two authoritarian regimes? And maybe if you allow me to be a little bit more provocative. Do you feel that the perception of Russia and China has changed inside your party since Angela Merkel stepped down? Um, it's a very tough one and or two tough questions. Let me again try and give a wider explanation of why the country has ended up where it 
has ended up now. I think more than any other nation, Germany and its political and economic and business leaders have misinterpreted Fukuyama's book about the end of history, fall of the Berlin Wall. And if I look out of my office window here, it's not too far away where the former Iron Curtain uh, used to cut this city into two parts. So the relief in Germany that the uh, Cold War had ended in 1990 sort of morphed into a big euphoria, a euphoria that was then intellectually underpinned by the wrong thought that the world would go only one way and the, the way would be our sort of Washington consensus model, our Davos-type world where peaceful nations would be trading with each other. We'd happily uh, producing goods and services and exchange them and things like rivalry, great power, great power system confrontations, ideological uh, warfares would all be things of the past and I think over the last 10 years already the world had to realize in Germany in particular that this was wishful thinking. I go back as far as 9-11 to contest the view that there is eternal and peaceful development of the world community. We do still have ideological, if not religiously infested conflicts. We have definitely great power rivalries and it took a bit too long for German decision makers to understand that the basic assumptions were, were wrong and that we live in the old Hobbesian world that we've always been living in and that the three decades since 1990 had been nothing but a nice but untenable dream. And so the country is now faced with a harsh reality, a reality that is not, in, in my view, confined to Germany. Everyone is more or less dependent to a degree on trade with China. Everyone is to some degree affected by Russia's aggressiveness. Germany may be more than others, but we're not alone in that boat, but maybe we have got the longest way to go until we realize what decisions had to be taken. And at this point in time, I always try to make people understand that the assertiveness of China that we, as we speak, see when we listen to Xi Jinping's speech yesterday to the 20th Party Congress, that assertiveness is nothing new. It's always been there in between the great poles of power on this planet. For centuries and I think we have to give up our ahistorical view of the world and, and take into consideration that some of the patterns that we are faced with are centuries old, they may be human, but to the extent that they are human they are manageable because we've survived and managed other great power rivalries and I think we will manage this one as well. It is important for me to always state when I read in the papers that China is Germany's biggest and most important trading partner. That's nonsense. It's absolute rubbish. Our number one trading partner, by far on the export and on the import side, number one is the European Union. Number two, by far, is the United States of America. And then and only then can we talk about China. So the inability to see the European Union as one trading partner is maybe already an explanation of what went wrong in the last couple of years. We seem to have seen China as a holistic player and the European Union as a number of economies when maybe it's the other way around. You never know how stable the People's Republic of China will be in the next 10 years. It's 1.3 billion people with immense eternal problems. And the European Union, whilst culturally different, whilst having all these little fights and quarrels about little things like quotas and workplace regulations, could still be the more stable partner. So it's a question of perception. Then you take a look at Russia. Yes, we are dependent on Russian energy for the time being. But who out there is aware 
that Russia has a smaller GDP than Spain. Yes, it's a small economy with a huge territory and nuclear capabilities. But again, it's not a giant that we should be particularly afraid of. And I think that's one of the things that we need to be able to distinguish economic interdependencies, which have increased since 1990 in what we used to call globalization 4.0 or whatever, the opening up of financial markets, the trade markets and so on. Everyone around the world is dependent on everyone else. Germany may be sometimes to a larger degree than others, but it's not that Germany is the only interdependent country and everyone else is autonomous or independent. That's not the case. So the management of interdependencies in a world with the resurgence of great power rivalries, of systemic rivals, is something we just need to manage, something we need to realize. And Germany, I think, is on a good way of realizing that the world is not the funfair we thought it would be. Has the perception of Russia and China changed in the CDU since Angela Merkel stepped down? There have always been various views in the CDU on both countries, particularly on Russia. But let's not forget Angela Merkel had to govern almost 12 years with the Social Democrats in her coalition government. And they were always refusing, as far as I can remember, to take a more critical view of Russia, which Angela Merkel, due to her biography, always had. Having spent uh, the first 30 years of her life in communist East Germany, in the SED dictatorship, I think she always had a very, very good sense authoritarian regimes are like what their DNA is looking like. I think she was under no illusion who she was dealing with when she met the Chinese leaders and the Russian leader Vladimir Putin. But forced by coalition partners and maybe a more naive German industry, she had to make some compromises. But the CDU has always been relatively sober about Russia and maybe a little bit too over-optimistic regarding China. But we're all in the reassessment process at the moment. Thank you. That was... Very interesting and gives me loads of food for thought, including about the the way people expect the German chancellery to function as a sort of, or German power to function as a sort of a very centralized, which is not the case, right? It's very decentralized, both within the, the realm of uh, coalitions and also with the lender. There would be a lot of things to talk about, but as, as we have, time is limited now and I would like us to speak about the, the transatlantic relationship and more specifically the US-German relationship, which has been strained over the past few years, to say the least. Now, you know the United States very well, I believe. I think we can agree that when we are talking about a relationship like this, there is always going to be uh, complexity. There's always going to be highs and lows. But I think the late 2010s were clearly one of the low points of the transatlantic relationship in living memory, as seen from both Berlin and Washington. Now, there will be a lot to say, I think, on both sides about the whys and the responsibilities for this weakening of the link between uh, Berlin and Washington. But I would love to have your thoughts on this, but rather on how taking it from now, do we improve the relationship? Well, if it was a, a human relationship between two lovers or so, I would say we have to start seeing each other again. We have to start going out again. We have to restart having dinners together to bring it back to the more serious side of the political game. The frequency in which US and German leaders and business people and ordinary citizens have been seeing each other over the last 20 years was too low. And I think that's the easy bit of it. If, if we start seeing each other again, if, if 
if say the two annual trips to Washington and the two annual trips to Berlin would be back in the calendars of decision makers, that would be a first and important step if we could revitalize university exchanges again. And if we could realize that the European propensity to look at the Eurasian picture over the last 20 years was maybe a little bit lopsided, causing a lot of uh, disappointment on the Western bit of our hemisphere, I think if we could recalibrate that, that would help enormously. And I think it will happen. The sheer necessity of cooperating more in economic and military terms, in security terms, will, I think, provide for that rapprochement between the two sides. But it's really down to the to the human side. We, we've not seen each other. If I take my own travel pattern over the last 20 years, I was visiting the States maybe two or three times, whereas 30 years ago it would be two or three times per quarter. And I think these things have to be revitalized. Getting to know each other again, getting to realize what we have in each other and valuing the contribution of the other in, in the transatlantic endeavor is psychologically and, and political psychology is always important, the most decisive factor. Indeed, the personal relationships are always, I find something that is crucial. And it's interesting that you mentioned this uh, under this angle, because very often we look at the, the personal relationship between the heads of state, right? But you are talking about personal relationship at all levels. I think, you know, this sort of bottom-up vision is, is actually extremely interesting. That is really what allows us to understand each other better. Uh, Dr. Kerber, we are coming to the end of this show, but before I let you go, I am going to invite you, like my other guests, to take part in our lightning Q&A session. It's very simple in principle. I'm going to ask you three very short questions to conclude, and I'm going to ask you to provide three very short answers. Yes, no, a couple of words, nothing more. Is this okay for you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's go for it. Uh, question number one, should the German people be worried about the state of the uh, economy today? No, because we're resilient and we'll bounce back. Question number two, will Germany face energy shortages this winter? Yes. Question number three, what is the single most important thing that the German and American political establishment can do to improve the transatlantic relationship? Starting uh, to have a lot more lunches and dinners together. Okay, well, on this cheerful note, we're going to uh, leave it there. And cheerful note, because there is obviously a lot of culinary specialities to enjoy on both sides of the Atlantic. Dr. Kerber, thank you so much once again for your time. It was really a fascinating discussion about Germany's present and future. And uh, this is now the end of this episode of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Many thanks to Romain Lequinio and Andras Brown for producing this series. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a new topic to discuss. In the meantime, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show and, of course, share it with your friends and colleagues. We love it when we get more listeners. Thanks a lot for listening in and talk to you soon.